Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's show, we're joined by Carrington Tatum. Carrington is a reporter for MLK 50, a nonprofit newsroom focused on poverty, power, and public policy that was founded in 2017 by journalist Wendy Thomas. He's also a part of the Report for America program. Regular listeners know that we're a huge fan of that organization, which is now taking applicants for its next reporting class. More on that later. Carrington, hi. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. On November 30th, Carrington won the Breaking Barriers Award from the Independent News Network for a nearly 40-story series on the Bahalia Connection Pipeline Project, one slated to run through one of Memphis's poorest neighborhoods, only to be eventually dropped after months of protest by community and dogged journalism by MLK50. Before we get to that, uh, Carrington, tell us the story of your journalism path. It's a little weird one. I, I did not grow up wanting to be a journalist, never considered it as a a uh, career option, but my doting mother made me go to college, Texas State University. I uh, initially showed up for business, quickly learned that was not fun. So I took a semester, had some extra uh, room for electives in my degree plan, and you know, I, I signed up for it. You know, I, I kind of said, I'm going to punt business. I'm going to just figure out what I want to do. I signed up for a philosophy class, a psychology class, and a mass communications class. And I went in just open-minded wanting to, to try each of these things that I kind of had a slight interest in. Uh, had a really great intro to mass comm professor, Dr. Lori Fluker, and she was inspiring in more ways than one, but she uh, sort of walked us through all these different areas of media. And she got to, to the journalist section and kind of explains the, the, the mission of being the fourth estate. That was the, the first time I was exposed to that idea. Um, and at the same time, I had began working at the student newspaper, the University Star. I began writing opinion columns, which was the way I, I arrived at the Star was to, I needed a job, <laughs> I needed to make money. I had always been a good writer, never liked doing it. And it seemed great to get paid to write. I felt like it was something I, I could do, so I did it. And between this intro to mass comm course, learning about what journalists do and being in the newsroom and seeing the student reporters do their work, I always say I, I kind of caught the journalism bug. I was like, you know, that I think that's something I can do. And I think I, I can do it in my own way. And so from there, I ended up being the editor in chief of the University Star, went from there to the Texas Tribune, from the, the Texas Tribune uh, to the, the Dallas Morning News shortly. And I, I say that was a weird turn because by then we had a, a pandemic hit. And I initially thought I would leave the Texas Tribune to joined the Washington Post as an intern for them. But when the pandemic hit, they canceled the program. But I was really lucky uh, that I had some people looking out for me. The Dallas Morning News, they picked me up, hung out there for a while, and then eventually ran into Report for America. And the recruiter um, still trying to sort out, you know, very early in the pandemic. So nobody knew what was going on. They asked, hey, did you want to, or have you ever heard of this place called MLK 50 out in Memphis? And... I, I sort of interrupted the recruiter. I was like, you don't, you don't need to tell me more. You don't have to sell me. I'm already a fan of MLK50. Put my name in. I, I want to work there. And that's what brought me here. That's great. That's, uh, that's a fascinating way to go from 
no interest to this position. Now, I want to get to your upbringing and just how did what happened in your upbringing inform your journalism interests? Mm. Yeah, that, that is a tricky question that I, I think often about, because while I never had an interest in journalism or knew much about it, I think there were qualities that I always had that would have made me a good journalist. Namely, I, I talk too much. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm always asking, asking questions. As a kid, that's what I was in trouble for. It was talking, being far too curious, asking questions that were beyond my, my I guess, probably may or may not have been appropriate for whatever my age was. But I always loved to learn. Like learning new things was, was always exciting. It didn't necessarily have to be a... Um, something I was passionate about. It was just fascinating to learn something new. And I also, I, I'm originally from Garland, Texas, which is a city right, side, right outside of Dallas with about a third of the population of Memphis. And, you know, just growing up, I, I was also raised by a single mother and she spent a lot of her time not only taking care of, of me, but she also spent a lot of time helping others. And I was also raised in church. And so, you know, at a very young age, I was, I was doing service, you know, whether that was volunteering at the Salvation Army, like service was a, I guess just a, a core part of my, my household. And so I think it was, you know, when I discovered, I almost feel like a lot of things overlapped in, in a Venn diagram to bring me to journalism, whether that's learning about it on accident at Texas State, but also having these personal qualities, this background, I think it all kind of mixed together to bring me to a, a form of journalism that is deeply rooted in public service. I liked how you said that when you heard uh, the word MLK 50, you were like, I'm already a fan. I'm, uh, sign me up. Totally interested. For well, those yeah, that, that, aren't, that, that, that aren't familiar with what it is, uh, tell, us, tell us about MLK 50. Yeah, that, that was what fascinated me. And when I say I was a fan of MLK 50, you know, this idea of doing justice through journalism was... You know, as I developed as a reporter, as I learned more about the field, it was sort of an, an inkling of an idea of, you know, in my own head of, you know, I, I think there's a different way we could do our reporting that would, you know, let's double down on helping people and serving the communities who, who need that help most. And I thought that was, you know, as a very young reporter, as a student, I thought that was a, I guess, a, a far off idea that I would have to, you know, attempt to do, you know, a 30 year veteran in the game. But I, I stumbled on MLK 50 just randomly one day, I think in, in search of, you know, wondering if anybody had ever approached journalism this way. And, and I began reading the stuff. I'd never been to Memphis, so there was a lot of context I didn't have. But reading some of Wendy's early, it was a form of journalism that, you know, really was in my head, it, it was a dream. But at MLK 50, it was a reality. And, you know, I, I think it's an, it's an ongoing experiment and that, you know, obviously so honored to be able to contribute a little bit to that. And so when the re recruiter called me, he didn't have to, you know, tell me what the newsroom was. And I was able to, to tell him to put my name in. I got to work here. And when we talk about what MLK 50 is, we're a nonprofit newsroom based in Memphis, focused on poverty, power, and policy. And we're actually a really small staff as well. So very young, as you mentioned. And like I said, I, I see MLK 50 as uh, an experiment where, active, where we are actively testing that thesis of what does it mean to do justice through journalism? 
On your LinkedIn page, it says that the news should serve people who have been made most vulnerable by systems of oppression first. And I want to get to Behelia second related to that. But what's an early example from your career of trying to live up to doing that? When I think about reporting serving people who have been made most vulnerable, which is, to me, the, these are ideals. These are sort of goals that I set for myself. But, you know, in many ways, it's easier said than done. Right. And I think early in my career, I, I experimented with that, even at the Texas Tribune, where as a reporting fellow, covered homelessness. And specifically at that time, there were discussions from Governor Greg Abbott, who had you know, gone back and forth with some officials for the city of Austin about, you know, I guess, policy around people who are experiencing homelessness. And obviously at the Tribune focused on po- politics and policy, there were many stories that we needed to write, but the most important, I think, was the one where we simply went out to you know, people who were experiencing homelessness, living under the highways, you know, waiting in line outside of shelters, and simply asked them, you know, hey, how do you feel about this new policy? How do you feel about the things being said? You know, the, the, I guess the way people are viewing folks who are in, in your position, who are having this experience, and who, who are unhoused. And with that story, it, it was really important for me because it was pulling those folks into a conversation that they otherwise would not be invited to. And there are also folks who have far less power than the people who are making decisions about, you know, their livelihoods, right? And so to me, that I think that's an early example of, you know, leaning into that mission and saying, you know, who, who are the people here who are getting the short end of the stick when it comes to how we set up society? Who are the people with the least power? Who stands to harm the most by any of our policy decisions on this issue? And it would be the folks who are, who are at the center of it, who are unhoused. Yeah. Giving a voice to those who are impacted. That's been a theme of people that we've talked to on this podcast uh, throughout the past year and a half. With that, I want to get to the story, uh, this, the story of this pipeline coming to Memphis, because it's a lot of story. Congratulations on the award. Yeah, g- give us a, an overview first of what the heck this story was and how it kind of came to be and what happened. Well, yeah. You, you would think after 40 stories, I would uh, be really great at giving a synopsis, but I, I think it's the opposite. So essentially, you know, two companies based in Texas, they proposed a plan to build a crude oil pipeline that would stretch from the Valero Memphis refinery, which is in South Memphis, go from there to a facility in Marshall County, Mississippi. And that stretch of pipeline would run down through South Memphis and across Northern Mississippi. When you're talking about South Memphis, you're talking about predominantly black low-income area, as well as an area that already has a disproportionate burden of pollution and, and polluting facilities. And so given that context and the company wanting to build their pipeline, there were folks in a, a small community, small neighborhood in Southwest Memphis called Boxtown. And folks in Boxtown, you know, they had kind of stood up and, you know, gone to meetings with the company, held their own community meetings through the neighborhood associations to essentially say, hey, we don't want this pipeline. We don't stand to gain anything 
there's already too much pollution. So we don't want the pipeline, don't build it. And from there, that grew and grew and grew to a national, the national spotlight in that you had all of Memphis or people from all across Memphis eventually jump in to block this, this crude oil pipeline that they say, many critics say the pipeline was an example of environmental racism, of, you know, placing fossil fuel infrastructure in communities with the least power to the least economic and political power to fight it. You've done a number of stories on environmental racism or talked to a number of people covering environmental racism dating back to the first episode of this podcast when we discussed tree cutting in Seattle, something that's prevalent east coast to west coast. What was the hardest part of trying to cover this? The hardest part, I think, is was simply the the reach of this issue. And that's, that's why I said, it is, as a reporter, it's difficult for me to provide this succinct synopsis because this pipeline, which, you know, has millions of dollars going into to building it, or even, you know, simply doing the preparations to, to propose the idea, you're reaching across several branches of government, stretching across a whole bunch of landowners' property. And so for me, it was getting up to speed on you know, being able to watch this issue at city council, at the county commission, in the courts, you know, the, it, it was such a, a broad issue with a far reach. And I had so many corners feeling like I had to get to them all as a, um, you know, I, I think that is a reporter instinct of wanting to do every story possible um, and leave no stone unturned. And you got to 40 of them. If you, <laughs> if you were to give advice off of what you learned from the experience that you just said to someone, a future potential report for America reporter related to what you just said, what would the advice be? My advice would be one, to talk to any and everybody, one, just as a fundamental rule. But I think it's really important to, to find the experts in these different fields rather than trying to, you know, because it, it becomes a point to where you you cannot become, you know, sort of the the master of all of these different spaces. You need other people's expertise to lean on. And it's really helpful to if you already have that network of whether it's attorneys who can explain what these court documents mean, whether it's, you know, sources who understand the inner workings of the city, who can explain, you know, what permits mean. And even scientists who can explain the chemicals and, and the, the mechanics that go into, you know, constructing a pipeline. Yeah. What was your experience in trying to tell the story from Plains Pipeline's perspective? All of my reporting, you know, the, the cornerstone and the, you know, the underlying fabric is providing a fair and accurate report of whatever's happening. And very early on, I had lots of conversations with representatives from Plains All-American Pipeline, one of the, the companies that was Plains All-American Pipeline partnered with Valero Energy Corporation to construct this pipeline. And I had a lot of conversations with them early on. And I think a part of that was, you know, simply leading with, with you know, my, my goal and my cornerstone of ethics being, you know, fair and accurate. And, you know, I, I think the challenge came in 
later in the porting, later in the reporting, and especially as the community's fight grew and picked up momentum, eventually representatives stopped taking my calls and stopped responding to my emails, which to your point, that does make it difficult because for me, you know, it, it's always about being fair on an issue and being able to talk to all of the stakeholders, everybody involved, you know, in, in the project and get all of these perspectives to, to provide a well-rounded story, which, you know, which is difficult, but I think they're also, you know, as a reporter, my, you know, I can, the, the best tool I have to uh, get someone's perspective is the bug that's not out of them. And I believe I did that. I gave it my best effort to, to be persistent and then just find, you know, other, other resources, things they've, marketing they've posted online, things they've said before to always try and put that in. Uh, because to me, the best reporting you know, has to be well-rounded in that sense. One thing that you noted in one of your pieces was that you, you, you combed the community pretty well and you couldn't find anyone who was in favor of this. So in July, the project was canceled. First of all, what was that like and what was your coverage uh, of that like? Yeah, so... When they announced the cancellation, that word came on a, a Friday at the end of the day. In fact, my coworkers had, you know, just posted in Slack saying, you know, everyone have a great weekend. Well, we'll see you later. And then that news came down and I had to break the news to my colleagues that, hey, you know, weekend might have to hold a little bit later because pipeline or the company is abandoning the, the project. And in that moment, it was sort of that. I think every reporter knows that adrenaline rush of breaking news, of needing to get that word out. And that's exactly what it was from my perspective. It was, you know, making the calls to confirm that news, you know, checking with folks in the community to, to get their responses. And I think that, that was sort of the immediate, the first story we did was to announce that news, right, to, that the company was ab- abandoning the project, but then also just talking to all of these folks who had been so heavily involved in the fight. Um, to sort of get their reactions to it. And there were a few different layers uh, that were involved in the cancellation and different things related to court and all these different things that you had to do. You wrote an op-ed, essentially a commentary about this. One of the, the, an excerpt from that, Plains representatives did not consider the option of not building a pipeline because the community doesn't want it since fossil fuel companies historically have never been required to care what poor black communities think of their business. What was it like writing that and writing that piece? Yeah. You know, my, my editor asked if, you know, I wanted to write that piece. And I I think it was, you know, it's putting on a different hat, sort of stepping into a different set of shoes. But I think, you know, having spent, you know, so many months covering this fight and, and really, you know, the pipeline is, is an object itself. But I think for many folks in the community, they often told me that, you know, it's not, it's not just about the pipeline, it's about a history of, you know, having to carry the pollution, carry the, the burden, pay the price for, you know, other companies to, to profit. And so given all that, that perspective, and even, you know, watching that fight unfold, you know, it was, I think that was one way to kind of analyze the, the chain of events is that, you know, and all of the decisions that could have been made along the way, that was sort of the the last option. And I think, you know, if you do the historical analysis, because again, the, the pipeline wouldn't be the first piece of fossil fuel infrastructure in Southwest Memphis. There are a lot of facilities that, you know, folks are taking issue with, you know, even Southwest Memphis as is often cited, you know, there, there's a study that has 
found the cancer risk to be four times higher than the national average in that area. And so I think for many folks in that in the community, you know, the, the pipeline was not the first thing. It was the latest in a, a long history of, you know, those facilities being forced onto those communities and in many cases them not being able to stop it and the the company not being required to or forced to or having any pressure not to. I, I feel like this is the part of the story if I was watching and I feel like I've seen movies of this nature in which everyone in West Memphis celebrates and the company just moves on to the next community and for them the beat goes on. Have you seen this story play out anywhere else and seen any other communities have to deal with this? When you say this, you mean environmental? Yep. Uh, okay. Well, I mean, yeah, you know, we're talking about environmental injustice. I think that is a, you know, it's a broad subject that is getting more and more attention because it is sort of an ever-present um, force and an ever, ever-present injustice in, in our communities. And so to your point, the, the pipeline itself, the company has abandoned the project, but I think broadly environmental injustice itself is certainly not gone away. I, I think that would be a difficult, that would be a, a difficult story to write, to, to say that. Well, and you've done pieces like one that I saw on Black Millennials for a Memphis-based environmental journal, uh, justice organization that advocates for the reduction of lead exposure. So this takes mm-hmm. on many forms. What's the most interesting thing you've learned about, about the science of this in the time that you've done your report? Man, yeah, that, I think that's probably the biggest learning curve is learning the names of chemicals I never, never thought I'd need to know about. But I, I think what's fascinating to me is sort of the extent of, I guess when we, when we talk about pollution burden, when we talk about sort of these, these facilities, you know, to me, it, it is interesting to see how deeply rooted, you know, toxic facilities are and sort of the pollutants, whether they be in the air, the land, the water, you know, these things all kind of mix around to, to create uh, well, I guess what, what is difficult, it, you know, it, we're talking about environmental injustice and the environment is everything, right? And so I, I think it, it is always, there are always new layers to say, you know, just right off the bat, even the idea that somehow the air can be a medium for, for racism, for discrimination, for that pollution to travel and be disproportionately concentrated on, you know, low-income Black communities, right? Like, that right there is enough to to shock some folks, but the more I learn, you know, there's always a new corner of the environment that I learn injustice reaches to. So whether that's you know lead in the homes, whether that is you know the things that are in the soil, right? Like there there really is no limit because in in a weird way everything's an environmental justice if you look at it with the right lens. It's amazing. In the interviews that I've done, I, I came in knowing zero about that as a subject. And now in maybe half a dozen interviews that we've done over these 50 something interviews, it's come up. And every time I'm like, whoa, that's that's a completely different way of looking at it. I want to touch on a couple of other types of things that you've written about in your in your time with MLK 50. And there's a pretty broad range here. You recently wrote about the killing of the rapper Young Dolph, a Memphis native, and explained how his lyrics connect with some of Martin Luther King's messages. You've written about, you did a Q&A 
several months ago with a state politician who was facing federal charges. It was a, from what I could read, it seemed like a pretty intense Q&A trying to get to the bottom of what she was being accused of and later convicted of and what was going on with that case. What have the other things that you've covered been like to cover uh, during this uh, experience with Report for America? It, it is tricky for me as a reporter because I'm constantly, you know, moving to all these different stories. But I think one thing that sticks with me is sort of the gravity of, of many of the stories I write. And particularly, you know, poverty, power, and policy are not lighthearted issues. And so with any story I write, you know, I, to me, my, my cornerstone is, is telling stories that focus on people's humanity, right? And because I think that is the difference between, you know, you could write an environmental story focusing on the harm to trees, but you can also write a story focusing on the harm to people. Not to say that trees are not important, but even then, when we talk about why trees are important, it's because trees have, uh, you know, an, an impact, have an, an effect on humans, on, on the people that, that depend on trees in one way or another, right? And so to me, every story I write, I try to make sure I'm keeping humanity at the center. And, you know, I think that that makes for good reporting that serves the community, but it also does come with, with emotional toll. You know, when you're talking about, you know, the, the killing of a, of a Memphis icon, of a, of a great artist of our time, or even anyone's incarceration, also Purvis Payne, a, a man who, is, who uh, was convicted uh, of murder and uh, sentenced to, to die. Uh, and also someone with an intellectual disability. And, it, and you know, to me, the, the gravity of all these stories is something that, that sticks with me in a, in a way that, you know, I'm actively having, having to learn to, to cope with as a reporter from, from death to incarceration. You know, none of, neither of those things are, you know, those, those are not outcomes that should be taken lightly. Heartbeat journalism, I think, is, is what you might call it. With that, with that in mind, what are your future career aspirations? I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, I, I should have it figured out. I should have a, a 10 year, 50 year plan together. Not necessarily. Like my stellar colleagues, but that's not me. I, I am very much focused on the reporting that I'm doing right now. And, you know, I, I'm still actively trying to figure out, you know, what the next step looks like for me. What are the benefits of the Report for America program? Oh, well, you know, Report for America, there. There's a long list you could you could give, but I think one of the things that's most important is Report for America gets you away from your your home in many cases, right? So it puts you in an environment that is new, unfamiliar, makes you uh, stretch yourself and grow to you know be a great reporter in a new environment, which I think you know is also helpful just in your personal capacity. And so I think if you are really interested in traveling, if you're interested in seeing new places or just finding a new environment to explore. Report for America is great for that. And also being able to, to bolster local news is a far different, a far different mission than you know, any, other, any other journalism job you, you could have. Because I, I'm a big fan of local reporting and I, I believe in you know, building the news from, from the ground up. And so to me, those, those are the two things that are really important to me is knowing that I have a, a very specific mission uh, you know, supports my my journalistic and personal values, but then also just being able to 
go into a new environment and have a network that's going to support you there. What advice would you give to someone in doing the application? I would advise them to be open-minded about the, the places you can, because I, I think there are, you know, there are many places we, we know for certain that we'd like to be when we look at the list and, you know, which newsrooms we know would be our favorite, would be our ideal. And there are some that we think we would never want to work in or never want to go to, but I, I think being open-minded is really important because even, even coming to Memphis, it, it was not in my plan. I had not considered the idea, but I'm really glad I came, right? And, I'm, you know, I think this was, this was the best outcome for me in, in more ways than, than one, but it wasn't something that was at the front of my mind. So I would just recommend anybody applying. Don't be afraid to stretch, challenge yourself. Maybe try something you don't think you, th- you are unsure about. All right, last question. Is there a journalist, one that you're maybe not affiliated with, journalist or journalism organization, that you would like to salute for their good work? Man, there, there's a lot of people. You can do more than one. Okay. Well, I will say shout out to Leanna First Arai, who she is a, a great journalist who also understands you know, what it means to do justice through journalism. In fact, she uh, wrote the f- some of the first stories for MLK 50 and Southerly uh, on the Bihelia Pipeline. And it was actually those stories she wrote you know, the folks who came in to help bolster the fight a little bit later, they read her stories and that inspired them to get more involved in the fight. So I think I, w- I would salute her, Adam Mahoney at Grist covering environmental justice and doing a, a really great job of, you know, like I said, putting that humanity at the center of environmental issues. But I, I will stop there because I will go all day if we, <laughs> <laughs> if, we if you let me. Carrington Tatum, MLK 50 Memphis. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Report for America has applications open to join its program. There will be approximately 150 slots available across the country. There's an emphasis this year on reporting in rural areas, covering education, the environment, and communities of color. The program is also looking to fill two dozen Spanish-speaking positions. Applications are being accepted until January 31st, however, those who apply before December 31st will receive early consideration. To learn more and to sign up for an information session, go to their website at reportforamerica.org. You can also check out the interviews we've done with Morgan Mullings, Cassidy Arena, and Farnoosh Amiri that are linked in the show notes. I want to tell you about another podcast that goes well with this one. Join Will Hitchcock and Siva Vidyanathan on Democracy in Danger. Each week they interview brilliant guests who are helping them save government by the people one episode at a time. Find Democracy in Danger wherever you get your podcasts or visit dindanger.org. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org podcast, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.